0: Now,
1: the podcast starts.
0: Hello, faithful listener. Welcome back to the podcast that you've hopefully heard before, otherwise you wouldn't be coming back. This is the show in which we talk about horror, sometimes we talk about other things, and sometimes we swear, so consider yourself warned. This week, my wonderful co-host
2: is... Stella, again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's always a pleasure and I, I'm I'm TD Velasquez but everyone can call me Dan, that's fine. How are you doing Stella?
2: I'm alright, I've got uh, the Wednesday, I had a bit of the Wednesday slump this afternoon but I think now it's the evening, I'm realising slowly but surely that it's Thursday tomorrow and then that means it's Friday the day after. <laughs> right yeah (laughs) Yeah. getting there yeah getting there that's my feeling today oh we're getting there
0: (laughs) yeah you're over the hump so Mm. ah, cool and uh yeah yeah similar feeling for me really obviously for the listener if you listen to this when it drops it'll be friday anyway we're edging ever closer to halloween so (gasps) um and uh Well, I suppose that makes me want to go straight into my bit of news, which is just I found out that over Halloween weekend, uh, the Horror Channel are doing a kind of a marathon of classic universal horror movies.
2: Oh, that's lovely. Um,
0: And I I think I'm actually possibly going to try and watch all of them. I mean, uh, given my personal circumstances with my mum and stuff, that might not actually be possible. But I really like the idea of just sitting down and imbibing about 12 um, <laughs> classic horror films, many of which I've never seen before. I've, there's quite a lot of Universal films I never got round to. Um, but I think, you know, there's some of the Mummy films on and the Wolfman and mm. things like that. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article on Den of Geek, which lists everything. Um,
2: oh, so the good. listener knows. But I'll, the uh, horror... I'll tell my students about that because we did, we did Universal and Hammer in week two. And um, right. uh, they watched they watched the Hammer film that I asked them to watch for the for the lesson. Um, but right. apart from that, most of them were like, "No, we have never watched any of these films." <laughs> so right. I'll tell them that they're all on Halloween weekend. So when they stagger in from the pub, maybe they can uh, stick one on.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think yeah, they've got no excuse really because whatever time of day they get back from the pub or night, or whatever yeah. time they stop carousing, there'll be a film on. <laughs> so, uh, you know. Yeah, and I do feel slightly guilty because I'm a big Hammer fan, as you know, and all Mm. that, but I'm actually, my knowledge is a bit spotty about early horror, which Kirsty's a lot better on. Mm. Um, But this is a a good opportunity to to catch up with some things. And and I do find them, just all of those kind of Hollywood films of that time, because they were really banged out in a studio Mm. system, they were like production line, they are just there's something very relaxing about how well made they all are you yeah. know even if you know they're obviously they're not all classics but it's like they were just professionals yeah and you know directors like um uh i don't know William Neal or, or whoever you know they, they were just guys who had to make so many movies per year and it's like what am I doing for the next two weeks? I'm yeah. doing The Wolfman. <laughs> and, <laughs>
2: then it's zombies and then it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, I really like them. I, uh, I, I do love those um, Universal Sherlock Holmes films as well, which uh, are kind of connected to the, the horror um, movement. Um, and I have seen all of those because I'm a bit obsessive <laughs> about some, certain Sherlock Holmes uh, things. Uh, so, yeah, I just... I can easily see myself really enjoying that weekend. So,
2: yeah.
0: I uh, just wanted to mention that. Have you got any news in the horror world that you want to bring up? Uh,
2: the only thing I can mention, and I don't have any details, so I don't think there's any details yet, is um is announced on iHorror that there's going to be a Japanese remake of The Cube. Did oh, right. the, the Cube? Canadian horror movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was pretty intense anyway, but I feel like a Japanese remake in 2021 would be pretty good so uh, yeah I'm looking forward to that
0: and, and it doesn't usually happen in that direction does no. it no yeah so it's so. interesting
2: to see it going going the other way yeah um speaking of halloween i'm gonna i do actually have an, an interesting plan for halloween because i haven't for years and um, me and my mate are gonna go and watch uh it's by is it walk the plank or whirly gig productions you can find the link and put it in the show notes anyway but the not far from me, just in Stoke, there's going to be a showing of the Blair Witch Project in the All woods. Right. Oh, wow, well, okay. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, as far as I'm aware, is going to be a big screen set up and there'll be some cover, but they've said, you know, bring blankets and bring something to sit on and warm clothes right. and, you know, someone the to go to the toilet with <laughs> right nice but yeah uh, the Blair Witch Project in the woods so that's going to be dead good so we're, that's on Saturday the 30th which leaves okay. me the 31st to do stuff with my daughter
0: oh lovely so, so that's Stoke on Trent, isn't it yeah yes right
2: I'll, oh, find, I'll find the link and we can put it in the show notes if anyone fancies it it's only seven quid so
0: oh wow I love Stoke I used to work there um it's a lovely place and I'd love next excuse to go back, but we won't be able to make this, unfortunately, but I hope lots of other people will, that sounds mm. fantastic. Yeah.
2: yeah, so we're doing it's... that, so we're very excited.
0: Excellent, um, and it, it's not really a bit of news and I don't really know any details, but I've just noticed on my phone just before we started recording that the Evolution of Horror podcast, mm. which is the podcast that all... Horror podcasts must bow to, even though I suppose technically, because me and Howard started doing the Lee Cushing podcast in 2016, I've been podcasting longer than the Evolution of Horror has been around. But but the Evolution of Horror has very quickly become preeminent because it's got mm-hmm. a really good format, kind of exploring horror subgenre by subgenre. You know, um, each series is focused on a different uh, subgenre mm-hmm. of horror. I think at the moment they're doing sci-fi horror. Um, and you just kind of, you, a couple of years ago, I, I loved the zombie one because you, you find yourself just led through maybe a horror genre that you haven't properly explored before. Mm. And um, they go into great detail on it and it's lovely. But uh, they also do random special episodes just on topical um, topics. <laughs> <laughs> Those two words don't work very well together. No. But yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and th- so i've just noticed they've just dropped a scream 25th oh. anniversary special episode
2: oh well that's for me <laughs>
0: yeah so <laughs> uh and me too so um yeah it's so long since since i've watched any of those. it's been really showing in
2: cinemas to. hasn't it I, I keep seeing people popping up on social media going oh i've just watched scream again on the big screen and i've been like oh, <laughs> oh right. <laughs>
0: i mean yeah, i think yeah, i'd heard been something it, about yeah. that but I didn't know it was a wide-ranging thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. Because, yeah. Um, it, assuming I go and see the new one on the big screen, mm-hmm. Scream will is probably the only franchise where I've seen every film on the yeah, big same. screen.
2: Yeah, same. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so.
0: Um, Yeah, in fact, I I saw Scream 2 in a double bill with Scream 1. Ah, nice. Which was a wonderful uh, experience, because obviously Scream had been out for a while by that point. Yeah, Loads of people in the audience were wearing Scream masks and stuff. It was like being in the opening scene of Scream 2.
2: So they achieved all of their (laughs) meta-narrative right there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just kind of... It, um, there was like an infinite regression of, <laughs> a, a, of meta quality to that screening. It was great. It was really good.
2: On Friday, yeah. I was in my horror class. I was teaching slashes on Friday. So I've got a, you know, in Scream 2, when they go and see the movie Stab, well, I've got a Stab mm. t shirt. So oh, good. Right, okay. And there's two of my students were are like, nice t shirt It's like, extra marks. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that's
0: great. Um, I'm glad that they're. <laughs> they got it I'm glad that, yeah i'm glad well i'm glad that somebody's marketing that as well that's yeah, that's fantastic it's a good um, one i was always slightly disappointed in screen three that they jumped straight to stab three
3: yeah
0: i understand why they did that because it's part three but we never saw anything of stab Oh, um, oh
2: there'll be some terrible fan fiction out there about it if you want to <laughs> They'll exist in a form somewhere, and it'll probably be terrible. Uh, you, you may
0: be right on mm. that one, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so that that's, brings us through the news for this week, I think. So, listener, in a little while you'll be hearing from our good friend Howard. He and I were able to phone each other up and delve once again into the bag of death, which we haven't been able to do for a few weeks. Um, and hopefully this will become a new regular feature of the show once again, but first, Stella and I are going to spend most of this episode discussing the rather wonderful and rarely talked about 2014 to seventeen American TV series the Stray. Yay. From a couple of weeks ago on the podcast I've recently finished watching the whole TV series So uh, since I only really started watching that series As a result of Stella's episode last year About TV horror um, I asked Stella if she'd like to talk about it on the podcast And Stella said Yes (laughs) And I was delighted So we're going to talk about The Strain Because we've both seen the whole series It's going to be a spoiler filled discussion um i think uh it's going to be really hard to avoid spoilers because it's a very eventful series um and there are specific ways in which each of the four series of the strain are different to each other and the characters are different and things so i think it's it's going to be really difficult to talk about those without spoilers so if you've never seen the strain uh go watch it i think it's on disney plus in the uk and yeah it's all that all four seasons it's very entertaining um I mentioned it to a friend of mine a while ago, I introduced a friend to it, I said, just watch the finalist episode, if you're not hooked by the end of the finalist episode, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. And he messaged me back a few hours later saying,
4: it's brilliant, it's brilliant! Hunger,
0: a poet once
3: said, is the most important thing we know, the first lesson we learn. But hunger can be easily quieted down, easily satiated. There is another force, a different
0: type of hunger, an unquenchable thirst that cannot be extinguished. Its very existence is what defines us, what makes us human. That force is love.
2: It's one yeah. of the best uh, pilots, I think, in you know, in the whole sort of glut of TV drama that we've had over the past 10 years. I think it's one of the mm. most um, interesting and drag-you-in pilots that, that there is. And, you know, there, there is argument that it doesn't sustain that because it didn't, wasn't that well-received. But I think, as for a pilot, like you said, you can't watch the pilot and then go, eh, <laughs> it just won't let you. It's it's, it's yeah, really, yeah. really fascinating pilot. It's fantastic. Oh. Um, yeah, and it's...
0: My only slight disappointment with the production of the series was, was that there was never another episode directed by Guillermo del Toro yeah. um, who did direct the pilot based on and also I think he co-wrote it which yeah. and he never wrote another episode either although obviously the whole series is based on his novel it's
2: on the novel isn't it yeah um, what they did with what's it called Chuck, Chuck Hogan I've got it written right here um, Chuck Hogan yeah, yeah well getting del Toro to sort of put his name to it and then to direct one episode American telly's done it before so they did it with um what's his chops uh Martin Scorsese and the boardwalk empire so he directed the pilot and everyone was like oh Martin Scorsese's doing a TV program where isn't uh, isn't this exciting and then he does the pilot and then everyone you know swarms in for that and then for the rest of the series he just gets his name on it but he doesn't Mm -hmm. have anything else to do with it it's a it's a strategy to go oh hey, look over here look at this this series because we've got you know this eminent director working on it but on, only for an hour and 20 minutes and then they're buggering <laughs> again so it's a it's a bit of a um, a tactic to be heard above above the noise yeah yeah
0: it's it's clearly effective and it? mm. it's kind of traditional in tv series that if the director who does the first episode is the one who sets the tone. Yeah. Everybody, all the other directors who follow, their job is really to imitate the first director. So if your first director is someone great, like, like Scorsese or Del Toro, mm. then A, they've, all the other directors have got to up their <laughs> game. But in a way, <laughs> that style has got to be followed if the series is doing its job. Um, so even though it, the, the, you know the original director isn't technically seeing it all through, it hopefully feels as if they are
3: mm.
0: um, yeah. and I, I kind of think in this case it is okay so before we get into the main discussion uh, let's just play a few clips from The Strain and then final warning folks anyone who's not seen it yet go away and come back once you've seen it um, because I think we're probably going to ruin it <laughs> yeah. so let's just have a listen to the series Throughout my life what it feels to cross a line
4: that line it has been crossed now
2: oh my god it's every passenger
4: they're all dead no signs of trauma
3: what is this
1: i have seen this disease before all the passengers dead and alive It must be destroyed.
0: So that was The Strain, and you will have heard there, among others, Corey Stoll, who plays the main character in The Strain, Dr. Ephraim Goodweather. Yeah. And um, I watched the pilot episode going, I don't know who that guy is, but he's okay. Uh, Then later on I realised, oh, it's the bad guy from Ant-Man.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) He's he's the annoying, bald, bad guy in Ant-Man. And uh, there's...
2: You know when he shaves his head? Yeah, at, yeah. Like season what two, season three,
0: mid season two. Yeah, something
2: yeah. like that. Yeah, uh, when with a shaved head, he looks dead ringer for my brother, and it was one of them things that once I noticed it, I just kept going ah. <laughs> right, like <laughs> so my brother. Yeah, really, really bugged me. Like shape of his nose, like everything. Just like oh, this is weird. This is weird. Why? Why is Nick in America? <laughs> <just> in <laughs> parasitic vampires. Ah. <laughs>
0: Oh, weird. Mm.
2: Um, it's uncanny. But, uh,
0: I, I just remember, as soon as he went bald, I thought he was reminding me of the Ant-Man villain. Yeah. And I just wanted him to grow his hair back. Which, he, spoilers, first spoiler, he never, yeah, he never quite does. grows his hair back. <laughs> but um,
2: Even the midst he, of the uh, world coming to the end of Parasitic Vampires, he finds time to shave his head.
0: That's true, he yeah. does, doesn't he? Um, yeah. So, where to start with The Strain, then? The first episode is called Night Zero. So um, you know, it's it's a great place to start, I suppose, um, and I love that title, um, and it's just such a um, a gripping kind of opening that this this plane flies into New York Airport, um, and what, by this uh, and there's some there's some kind of monster on it. That whole sequence where they can hear. Uh, like noises from the hold.
2: Oh, it's banging it's, underneath, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> just terrifying. I've have seen it twice, the pilots and it scared the hell out of me both times. And then when the uh, the the plane lands and and everybody or nearly everybody aboard it is dead. Yeah. That's just such a so
4: effective. Uh, what do you think that is? Wrestling of some sort? Our experts think it's the engine shutting down or liquids settling. How long between landing and shutdown? Six minutes. It's too short a window for a contagious event, so I think CDC should take a backseat on this one. I agree. Do you? Absolutely, I do. How often do you touch your face? What? In a day. How often? I don't know. Once an hour? Every three minutes. You have mouth-hand contact every five minutes. You touch somebody else every 20 minutes. That's how contagion works. You don't like terrorists? Try negotiating with a virus. A virus exists only to find a carrier and reproduce. That's all it does, and it does it quickly. It has no political views, it has no religious beliefs, it has no cultural hang-ups, and it has no respect for a badge. It has no concept of time or geography. It might as well be the Middle Ages, except for the convenience of hitching a ride on a metal tube flying from meal to meal to meal. That's how a plague begins. Do so you still want to be the first one through the door?
0: I said to you and Kirsty before, before when we talked about it briefly that it's basically Dracula, mm. isn't it? It's, it's the ship coming into Whitby yeah. and Dracula with everybody aboard dead. Because the box is in it,
2: isn't it? It's big, big wooden boxes in the plane. Yes, yeah. it's
0: Box of Earth, yeah. yeah um, which, again, is, is, is completely Dracula. But mm. I, And although, admittedly, I, sl- I find it less um, easy to accept that a plane could land itself... Although I think you're supposed to think that the pilot is, it like lands it under the telepathic control of the creature or something, but it the never master, really goes it? into it. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, that, that detail pleased me because it's at least the second time we've had a, a major vampire buddy called the Master, yeah. going back to the first season of Buffy. Buffy,
2: yeah. Um,
0: but it's probably been used a lot. Stella, I feel like you've got stuff to say and I keep talking over you.
2: <laughs> that, it's just because I've got... Um my uh one of the edits of my book chapter here that where i talk about it so you mentioned and it just popped into my head oh yeah i did write about that um with the box in the plane so obviously it's very dracula but then there's like there's other characters that mirror characters that we recognize from from dracula so we've got abraham abraham Setrakian. he's a holocaust survivor history professor and he's our van helsing isn't he yes with his uh with his sword and his cane which i love And then I sort of read, you know, the rich tycoon, um, Eldritch Palmer. I read him as like the Renfield character because he's waiting for Dracula to come and and save him and, you know, save him from death. So he's our Renfield. Um, So they're sort of the two that I recognised as being clearly from Dracula. But then I also liked how it played with the Eastern European things that we would... Perhaps expect from a Dracula-based situation. So, Mm. in calling them Strigoi, that's an Eastern European word, and yeah, um, you've got the a really. I think my favourite bit of it of the sort of the vampire lore in the strain was how they can still see themselves in the mirrors, but the image vibrates. I thought that was really really nice. So rather than vampires just being invisible in mirrors, they whenever they see themselves in a the mirror, it's there, but it's just it's just moving, and I was just like, oh, that's nice. Oh, wow. you really know, well, that, nice.
0: That's such a subtle detail, mm. but it went totally over my head.
2: <laughs> You'll have to watch it again. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> I probably don't need too much persuading. No. Um, yeah, I think there's... Uh, loads of, of dracula parallels mm. and i i think there's probably a number of different Renfields throughout the series yeah. because you've got a number of human characters who can't or even um well th- the interaction between humans and vampires in it is uh, is really interesting even though they're, they're not called vampires much they they are sometimes but obviously you've got the word Strigoi, mm. and you've got a very strong East, eastern european um thread through it because of both the character of Satrakian but Mm. also of uh, vasily fett the exterminator (laughs) played by kevin durant he's probably my favorite character
2: yeah i reckon so
0: he's great i mean
2: he he gets the best lines i reckon yes yeah that's true
0: um i say that there's a lot of strong characters in it and we'll talk about all of them hopefully um so at the the very start of the series, you have um, Doctor Goodweather, who's clearly well. I think we're introduced to him in a a, a marital counselling mm. session, um, mm. and he's he's on the verge of divorce. Um, he has a son called Zach, um, who's. Uh, Whose life is obviously being blighted by the fact that his dad's never around. He's so absorbed in his work, and he is in fact having an affair, as we later discover, oh,
2: yeah, um, with his colleague, isn't it? She's his colleague. Yes, yeah. Nora,
0: played Nora. by Mia Maestro, who is another um, CDC doctor. Um, and uh, and and for a while, the the way that um, Zach and uh, his mum, who's, uh, the actress is called Natalie... Oh, no, I've, I've <laughs> lost it. Um, oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, I'm going to just look at Wikipedia because <laughs> if I don't, I will feel utterly... Um, Natalie Brown.
2: There she is. Plays
0: Kelly, um... F's estranged wife yeah, yeah there's some really interesting stuff that goes on there because obviously um, basically the, the plot really gets going quickly in the mm. first episode because yeah we have that brief kind of counselling session to establish the characters and the emotional relationships but then immediately uh, F is called to the site of the uh, the, the grounded plane and so leaves that scene to go directly into the plot um and then from that point you've got the jeopardy of the fact that there's clearly some danger spreading from from this thing mm. um and uh, and kelly is separated uh um, zach kind of bounces around and and you're gradually getting to know more characters as you go through um and most of the main characters in the series, not all of them, but most of them are set up in that pilot as well. you know you've got um Sean Astin Aston as the uh as kind of f sidekick um who's being manipulated by is, he, is it's not by palmer is it he's
2: oh no it is he is by Palmer yeah he's kind of yeah. he's a bit of a lackey for him isn't he
0: yeah um,
2: um we also meet the the hacker.
0: Well, we do, although I think it's not for a couple of episodes. No, is it not? I can't remember. um, This, uh, yeah, the the Hacker character played by uh, the wonderful... um, (laughs) Why am I blanking on names? She's got an amazing name as well. Ruta Gedmintas. That's the one. I'll be honest, Stella, every time I saw her, I I just thought of you.
3: Oh.
0: (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah. She's just got this, this kind of slightly punky style. Um, and I remember when we were talking about His Dark Materials, and I, I liked her in that. And you. Oh, were she's Serafina,
2: isn't she, of course? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And you were there saying, yeah, she's in The Strain as well, so I was looking out for her.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: and, See, all these uh, things
2: that I once knew. <laughs> well, well all,
0: all, all, They're all gradually reviving within Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, uh, no, she's a fantastic character, although her name is Dutch Velders. Yes. Um, and, essentially, uh, she starts off as a villain, in a way, because she's the person who crashes the internet in New York, which kind of um, helps the uh, the strain, the plague yeah. of the Strigoi to spread, because it, people's communication is just... Um, Made very slow and and clunky, and I think that's another thing which is nice in the first season because you get this sense of doom that all these elements have been manipulated to make things as bad as possible. There's also in the middle of the series in an episode that is weirdly directed by Peter Weller,
3: hmm. uh,
0: Robocop himself, um, <laughs> there's a, a an eclipse that happens. Hmm. so for a couple of days there isn't even a day. So suddenly there are just stragglers everywhere, and um, I thought, "Oh my God, is this where it's going? Is the sun going to be blocked out for
2: good?" Like this in The Simpsons. And... <laughs> Was it in The Simpsons. Yeah, when Monty Burns—it's uh, why he, why Mr. Burns gets shot because he he covers up the sun. Oh yes, that's right. <laughs> he puts a big like metal umbrella thing up over Springfield, and. Uh, so that everyone will have to constantly buy electricity from the power plant but anyway <laughs> irre- irrelevant <Carry> yeah. on.
0: <laughs> but, uh, but no i thought that would be really good um i thought there's going to be some artificial way of blocking the sunlight and um that doesn't happen straight away in the series but it, it does kind of come back mm. um well, uh, yeah, just going back to Dutch, whose name is really interesting. They never really explain where she gets a name like that. No. And she's clearly English. <laughs> yeah. um, admittedly, the, the actress doesn't have an English-sounding name either. But um, I just think it's interesting that... Because when someone says the name Dutch is the first name, I just think of Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> in, the, in uh, Predator. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
2: That's not what they're going for in the strain,
0: is it? <laughs> no, not really. So, um, but yeah. So she's uh, she's kind of employed by Eldridge Palmer at first, whose name is a reference to the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch by Philip K. Dick, and a novel I have not read. No, me but either. I just remember knowing the title and going, "Oh, I see what they did that." <laughs> but it's also it's it's Lovecraft, isn't it? It's like Eldritch is the. Um, Is the adjective that I think H.P. Lovecraft invented to describe things which were a bit preternatural or a bit strange? Um, Uh, yeah, some of his book characters (laughs) are are described as having an eldritch look to them, so you can, yes, um, uh, yeah, I think Lovecraft invented that word and then, um, and then Philip Gay Dick appropriated it into a name and then, uh, Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan just changed the, the words around to make it into a different name.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I didn't know
0: but, that. Well, there we are. Yeah. So um, I have transferred some pointless information from my brain <laughs> to your brain. Yay! So, um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, uh, no, Dutch no, no. so, um, yeah, uh, no, is a really interesting character because she uh, she starts off being very much a mercenary character. Mm. She's a computer hacker who, who basically agrees to crash new york's internet for money and and, and only money um she, she's um not concerned about anything else but uh as she's brought together with the other heroic characters in the series and she realizes the chaos and the havoc that's been caused she yeah. becomes a badass fighter against the Strigoi. she does and, um, she's got a great character arc mm. um and there's loads of nice moments with her, um, th- so I think this is probably the first major spoiler. Uh, I th- one of the things which slightly disappointed me is that the series kind of sets up a running personal conflict between her and the great villain, uh, played by Richard Samel, who mm. is um, uh, he's he's a strigoi who is like the number two to the master. Yeah. Um, so he's the, he's kind of the face of villainy, because in a way the Master himself is um, rather an elusive villain. Yeah, we don't see... We don't see too much of him. He switches bodies at yeah. different points. He's voiced by Robin Atkin Downs, which is a nice Buffy link
2: yeah. as well. Well, um, I thought that the 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 effects on the Master when we do see him,
0: mm.
2: I thought they were very sort of Buffy-ish. Anyway, I found some of the visual effects... Well, some of them are quite... Disturbing, um, it's been very well done. But I found that some of the vampiric look sort of echoed Buffy a little bit, certainly like all the long fingers and and things like that, yeah. and the full facial prosthetics.
0: Well, well, they're both kind of drawing from Nosferatu. Yeah, aren't they? And, yeah. And I like the fact that I mean, and you you see this in the first episode, or at least you get the sense of it. I don't think you see the Master's face, but you can tell from the way that he is shot that he's not just another actor. Mm. He's He's a big monster, <laughs> voiced by Robin Atkin Downs when he speaks, but I don't think you even hear that, that voice in the first episode. In fact, yeah. you don't. Weirdly, the first episode has a credit which just says, voice of Lance Henriksen. So I think Lance Henriksen was the original casting for the voice of yeah, the Master. For the pilot. But A, obviously he doesn't come back. But B, I can't even remember, and I've seen it twice. I can't remember a bit in the first episode where you hear the master speak. It's um, um, I'm, I'm sort of trying to
2: run the episode through in my head. Does is there a bit of mastery mumbling? You know, the first kill, first vampiric kill that's not on the plane, that's by the wooden box, that's by his big box.
0: Where he kills the kind of superintendent yeah. of the airport. Yeah, is there yeah. some sort
2: of... The, there's
0: there's, there's weird kind of mumbling. Yeah, but, um, that it? Maybe. I f- but I find it odd that you get a relatively big-name actor to do that. Yeah, just come in and go... <laughs> <laughs> and then... <laughs> um, on What? <laughs> yeah, so that was weird. Also, did you know that John Hurt was the original actor who played Satrachean?
2: No,
0: I didn't. I was quite pleased when I found this out. Um, oh, well, pleased and saddened, because mm-hmm. I love David Bradley, who plays dragon mm-hmm. in the pilot and yeah. the whole series. But when they first filmed the pilots, it was John Hurt, right. who had worked with Del Toro. He's in the Hellboy films. Yeah. And probably some other things as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, he did film the whole pilot, but then he dropped out of the series. Um and Why? they had to reshoot all of his scenes with David Bradley, who then played the role for the rest of the series. Well, I think it was, um, and this is my Doctor Who fan knowledge coming in here, um, through, uh, you know, following his Doctor Who stuff, which he, he did for the last few years, um, I know when he started to feel Ill, fall ill, and it right. was about 2014. Right. He was coming down with cancer, and he died in 2017. Yeah. So if he had carried on playing Satrakia, and he probably wouldn't have survived through the whole series
2: yeah i guess going Um, having to to and fro from the states is not what you want when that's happening is it
0: yeah and we should say as well um i think the strain is entirely filmed in canada i guess so they all are Um, aren't they it's cheaper but it's it's very clearly (laughs) set in new york or most Mm. of it is and i think it's really well done i did find myself thinking is this actually filmed in new york apart because it does it kind of it, it doesn't just look like generic city. It it, it makes use of new, specific New York locations. and mm. um, I mean, I'm sure they must have done some filming in New York, yeah. whether it was just like second unit bits or whatever. Um, but it all hangs together really well. Um, but, yeah, so, so I would love to see John Hurt's take on that role. That footage does exist.
2: Mm.
0: But I don't know that if it was ever released. That would be really interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think David Bradley is fantastic yeah. as that character as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the casting throughout the show is is, is really strong. Um, but I, I suppose because I didn't know too much about The Strain before I watched the first episode, I wasn't really expecting to see actors I recognised. Mm. Um, but, you know, a number oh you've got a number of british actors turning up who i know from british tv like rupert penry jones yeah. who comes into it as as the good Stragoy later on who's um i'm Is blanking it? on on all the names but he's got a really kind of prosaic name um he's called quinlan although he's kind of established but he, he his origin was in Roman times, so he was known as Quintus then. But they all just call him Mr. Quinlan now. Mr. Quinlan. I think he's quite a fun name for That's a good guy. Name. Basically a hulking monster. <laughs> even if he is rather a honestly-spoken one. And then you've got people like Samantha Mathis turning up, who I, I knew from rom-coms in the 90s, like Jack and Sarah with Rich D. Grant. Um, and, of course, uh, Jonathan Hyde who mm. plays, um, I guess, the main uh, on-screen villain for the first couple of series, at least, yeah. Eldridge, Eldridge yeah. Palmer, doing his American accent, but he's a British actor. Um, the accent's
2: not bad, to be fair. It's no, right. he's really good.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not American, so I'm, I'm not the Thank best you. judge, but it didn't bother me at all. Um, um, and there is a bit where you get to see a flashback with, Jonathan Hyde acting with the actor who's supposed to be Palmer's father, who presumably is actually American, and there isn't a weird disconnect. Mm. It's you know it, the, 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 they work as father and son in that scene. Yeah. Um,
2: with this cast though, it's is it you know it seems crazy that not not many other people have seen it because whenever I've mentioned it and mentioned it to other people who like who like horror, everyone goes no no I've not seen it. What? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean you, well, I, I guess yeah. I found it I don't even remember how I found it uh, I found it while I was doing my PhD but I didn't include it in my PhD I, did, I wrote a paper on it but why Why would I have done that because it wasn't connected to my PhD I don't know, I don't know why I found it or why I started watching it but when I did start watching it it was like, oh, it's vampire stuff and it's got all these people in it that I recognise, why Why is no one else watching it and it, it did okay for FX, like it wasn't pulling mm-hmm. in the numbers like American Horror Stories, you know, it wasn't that well-regarded. But it, they, because they FX decided or they said to them, how many series is this going to take? And they said, it's going to take three series. And they said, right, okay, well, you can have it for three series. And then about halfway through the third, they went, uh, including the owner of FX, John Langraf, the channel executive, he said, are you going to need an extra season? And they said, yeah. And he was like, right, okay, one more season, then we're going to call it. So they knew from a fair way off the end that it was going to end. So because it was so finite and they didn't have to keep dragging it out and worrying about future ratings, they were just... I think they let it fly with a lower rating and lower viewing figures than it would have done if it it was going to be made indefinitely, if you see what I mean, because they knew it was going to end. It was like, yeah, okay, we'll we'll let that that go and we'll let it keep being made. Whereas other, other shows on FX that have had numbers like that and lower get, you know cancelled but because it was given a it will be this long everyone said well okay then off you go right okay and
0: i mean this might relate as well to the fact that it's based on this trilogy of novels yeah did you say you've had a go at reading them
2: (laughs) yeah i've got it is it in there it's you know when you you get a christmas book and it's the big 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 giant hardback (laughs) right (laughs) it's one of those and uh, i read probably about three quarters of it and for some reason i just couldn't I couldn't rustle up the arsedness <laughs> to, <laughs> to finish it. So I just never finished it. And uh, so, yeah, so maybe when I did find the TV show, I was like, oh, I read that or tried to read that. So I give I give the show a go. And then, like you said, you know, the pilot, I was just like, oh, this is tons better. But they right. did want it to be. Um, the book was kind of a a second thing. So initially it was written for television. Right. And they couldn't find a channel to pick it up, so Del Toro and Chuck Hogan instead wrote it as a novel. They mm. still wanted to develop it, so they turned it into a series of graphic novels, and then finally in 2012, FX ordered a pilot, and then they aired the first series in 2014. So, they'd, and, so they, so that you know they'd been around the houses trying to get it to television. Right. And mm.
0: um, when, when by the time the TV series was made, had the um, all three books been?
2: released i don't know
0: yeah. okay i'm not yeah. sure sounds like they possibly had been yeah I think I've, I've, yeah I've...
2: from what i remember reading about it i think it was this is the story it's this long mm. we'll need to do it in this much time so they were yeah. able to take that pitch to fx and say we need this many hours what do you reckon and fx at the time are going yeah we'll make everything Woohoo. and right did it.
0: <laughs> wow um Yeah, I think that would have given them a sense of security, though, wouldn't it? Yeah,
2: definitely. Knowing that
0: the the beginning and middle and end were already there. Um, And what I do like about the series is that probably because of that factor, um, there there aren't really kind of pointless subplots in it Mm. that don't go anywhere. Mm. There's there's no real sense of, um, oh, we've got to keep this going for a certain amount of time. We don't really know what to do with this. You know, everything keeps moving.
2: Yeah, they don't need um, to um, spin it out, do they? It's just just no. just get on with it and tell the story because we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna. And each of done. the
0: four seasons builds to a climax mm. as well. You know, in a different way. It's not just oh, they're just doing that thing again that they did last year, or that the strain always does. You know, it definitely feels like the series moves on. And in fact, um, you know, it's. I found it so exciting that the first seri- the end of the first series is they trap the master and it looks like they're going to kill him, but then he manages to get away and the, the rug is kind of pulled out from under them. Um, but every season kind of builds up to some big confrontation mm. like that. Um, to a big or boss. Some, or some big escape. Yeah, and, and I really enjoyed that. Um, so, uh, obviously, we've not got the time today to really go into detail on everything but one of the reasons i wanted to talk about it was that i just uh i find it strange that not enough people are talking about it Mm -hmm. or have done i mean before we did this podcast i just did a search to see if there are podcasts about the strain and there isn't one dedicated to the show (laughs) um and there are very few you know uh, podcasts that have done random episodes just talking about it um, in fact, I only found one, and that was reviewing the pilot episode back in 2014. Right. So it does seem like it just hasn't really made an impact mm. that it should have done. And maybe it's because of the times uh, that it's released in and that people don't notice it because there's so much other content
2: yeah. out there. Well, but, with that, the mm. channel executive, the FX executive, is called John Langraf. he mm. said in 2015... So there's this big sort of conference that they do in America, the Television Critics Association conference thing, where all of the execs and people get together and talk about, I don't know how great they all are, I suppose. Um, but mm. in 2015, Landgraf said, we're living in the age of peak TV. So it's like, right. there's so much content. It's really hard for viewers to find what they want. It's really hard for programmes to get noticed. You know, and he, he wrote something like, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was something, something around the, the figure of like in 2010 there was about 200 dramas on air in America. By 2015, they would more than doubled. It was like there's just so much content, and then with Netflix and everybody else piling on, so Langraf said it was it was it was peak TV. And a couple of years later, he kind of went back on that and said, you know, I said it was peak TV in 2015. Well, I think I lied, and I think what we're actually looking at is not even a golden age, but a gilded age of TV. And at some point. You know, this bubble's got a burst. Um, So he's still banging on about it and people kind of listen to what he says about the industry because he does does know what he's talking about. Mm. But in terms of the strain kind of getting a bit lost, I think, it is because, one, in terms of peak TV, there was so much drama. But also in 2014 and 2015, in the cycle of TV horror that sort of kicked off after The Walking Dead, 2015 was the peak year for that. So in 2015 alone, there was like nine new horror dramas launched and there was already 20 odd on air, which, you know, in the years before The Walking Dead, there was maybe one, two horror Mm. dramas on air. And I mean, on air in America. So I guess the strain was it was part of that cycle, but it did kind of get swallowed up and, you know, kind of answers my own question from earlier. That's why it kind of flew under the radar a little bit, because there was just so much, so much going on not just in terms of horror drama but in terms of long-form expensive drama anyway
0: yeah yeah um and the whole series does feel very post walking dead i mean we've obviously established that but i i really like the kind of um it's not mostly it's not post-apocalyptic but it's kind of moving towards the apocalypse Mm. it's a really nice (laughs) it's um, in the
2: post isn't it all all the way through
0: yeah, there's a feeling of humanity being overwhelmed in it. Yeah. And uh, I think we should talk about the Strigoi themselves. Yay! What do you think of that design? <laughs> that very, It's very Guillermo del Toro, isn't it? Yeah. It reminded me of the, you know, uh, do you remember the, the kind of ultra vampires from Blade 2? The, yeah. the vampires that feed on all the vampires, the yeah. way they have this kind of horrible maw that opens up yeah. and this kind of sucker comes out to grab people by. So the, the Strigoi and the strainer are a bit similar to that with their... Horrible tongue that that can leap out of I their mouth it? for two meters.
2: And... I think I called it. I'm looking at this again. I think I decided to call it a stinger. So I think at yes, some point that in there in the it's called a stinger, isn't it? So yeah, I was yeah. like, so I remember writing it and being like, "What whip neck snake? Like, what is this?" But yeah, stingers, stingers, the right way. And I think um, so. It, it leaves like a slit in the throat, doesn't it? A vertical yeah. slit. And then when when the vampires are hungry. <laughs> It kind of opens up and the Stinger whips, whips out and grabs the victim by the neck. Um, yeah. Sort of the, the rubbery prosthetic on, on the neck was very, very del Toro. It was, you know, mm-hmm. put me in mind of Pan's Labyrinth and Kronos and, and things like that. Is his yeah. other films. But I think the thing that I liked about the Strigoi the most is, one, the Stinger's quite nice, and because they're parasitic, they give, you, they give you vampire worms, essentially, which is yeah. a bit gross. Um, and I
0: like the fact that I think you'll agree with me here, Stella. You know, Del Toro has always been keen on. Um, he, he loves his monsters, monsters. And loves yeah, his vampires, that's the key word. But but they are yeah. It's kind of there's always something a bit gross, and it, it, it's like, <laughs> it, it's like he really. I mean, you know, there's so much vampire fiction which plays on the kind of eroticism. Oh and god, stuff, yeah. It was so refreshing
2: it, to have monsters, vampires. It, yeah,
0: uh, he's designing it in such a way that you can't forget that this is like a parasitic creature. You yeah. know, it's not a, a handsome man who gives you a kiss. Um, <laughs> you actually sort of see the gross, yeah. um, gooey, infectious the side worms. of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we have to mention then. <laughs> we have to mention Gabriel in the first season. So oh, Gabriel, right. Gabriel is the um, is the rock star
0: yes the
2: uh, haired rock star um,
3: so like you, you said uh, unlike
2: other vampires these are not they're not sexy they're not romantic and they're not they're not troubled and lovesick and all that kind I of I think him. I know <laughs> the scene you're oh, going to talk suck. about here Bolivar so he's, got stickers, he's
0: gold isn't
2: it? stickers yeah. that come out of the mouth yeah. and uh, and the episode is called Gone Smooth <laughs> 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 so,
0: that, so that went scary. over my head as well That's <laughs> so one.
2: Gabriel he's 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 one of the ones on the plane isn't he
0: Yeah, he's
2: one of the four survivors. He's slowly turning into a strigoi, and you can, you sort of through through the way he is and through his rockstar persona, he's obviously used to having you know enjoying the perks of a besotted female, you know, fandom. But in in episode one point three, gone smooth, he finds that his libido's gone, and that's kind of compounded by (laughs) his genitals just fall off and land in the toilet water, and he just goes. (laughs) <laughs> Shri- <laughs> Shri- <laughs> Shri away.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: And I remember just watching that and being like, "This isn't in fucking Twilight, is it?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So good.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah. It's called um, Gone Smooth, or that? Yeah. Well oh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, they they make a uh, key play out of the 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 um the fact that the creatures have a cloaca rather mm. than um two sets of uh oh uh, dear. Yeah, I was gonna say two sets of genitals, but you know what I mean? Two two different delivery systems yeah. for their di- it all goes like like birds or whatever. <laughs> it, it all goes through one opening. So mm. so you have no need for, for that particular appendage. For that appendage bye bye. Yeah. It just Blush goes you away.
2: To the toilet water. And it's his shrug.
0: Yeah. With a comedy sound effect. Yeah. Bolivar is a great character as well because, as a human, he he's just fun because he's basically a he's a rock star, but he's mm. a faker. He's got
2: that big goth hair, yeah, that is a
0: a wig that he takes off and he puts on this persona mm. to, in order to enjoy, like you say, the perks, the indulgences <laughs> of, of his position. He doesn't really care about the music or anything like that no, he
2: doesn't, does but, then, he.
0: but then as he becomes an actual striker he becomes quite a formidable villain mm-hmm. and later in the series he actually becomes the host to the master doesn't mm. he yeah um, so there's, there's loads of fame to do um and uh, yeah he he's cool um and so we've mentioned apart from dutch we've only really t- talked about the male characters and i i think that um the series does have quite a good array of female characters as well. Um, my slight problem, and again, slight disappointment, is that he doesn't necessarily use them all very well. Mm. Um, so the, in the first couple of seasons, the main female character is, is Nora played mm. by Mia Maestro. who's fantastic. Um, and Kirsty's not here, so I should say she's in Hannibal as well, which I was there very pleased to see. Um <laughs> uh, then at the end of season two, though she's um, she's killed off, or or she gets infected and yeah. kills herself, very in a very mm. effective scene, um, and it's you know it's emotionally powerful because particularly you've seen how she's trying to step in the into the role of being Zach's mom,
2: yeah,
0: kind of tentatively. Mm. You know she's trying to build a rapport with him, and she sort of half got there, um, but ultimately. She dies mainly because, um, well, it's a confrontation with Kelly, who's become a Strigoi by that point, and and Zack still has uh, loyalty to his mum mm. and doesn't want to see Nora kill his mum. So he, he kind of distracts her for half a second, which is all it takes. She would have had uh, Kelly's head off with her sword at that point, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at the same time there's been a really nice subplot in the second series which is eldritch palmer's relationship with his new uh aide, pa I yeah suppose, the pa um who's called coco yeah um and uh there's a fa- it's a fascinating kind of um political stroke romantic stroke professional relationship between them because um she obviously reinvigorates him to some extent. She makes him stand up to the master. but mm. um, She's almost killed, but then kind of brought back to life by the master, which is an interesting twist, because I was glad they didn't get rid of her um, straight away. But then at the end of season two, they do just get rid of her anyway. Um, essentially, to to a, in plot terms, she's... Killed by the master to remind Palmer who's boss. Who's boss? Yeah. But also it kind of gives Palmer the uh, motivation to um, kind of follow through on the seed of betraying the master, which builds up over the next couple of series. Mm. So it's a kind of classic fridging of it is the female character. Fridging. And do you remember uh, I talked about on the podcast when I have just watched the first series how the um the second series I started watching it, and it threw me off because they'd recast Zack with the, an older looking actor. Yeah, he suddenly
2: jumps up to being about 14. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, I got used to that, but it, but ending the second series on that kind of double fridging was a bit like, eh. it, mm. it was a similar kind of knock which made me not want to watch the rest of the series. I did though, but it took a while. Um, oh, the, the, there's another weird jump uh, or, or weird Uh, disconnect that for me at the start of the third series there's a bit of narration from satrakian where he says something like it has been 23 days since the plane landed in new york and started this play and i thought 23 days that's less than the number of episodes we've watched are you sure (laughs) i really old he's just (laughs) (laughs) well yeah (laughs) <laughs> but he, well, unfortunately, because I did just try and ignore that he said that, but then later in the series, there's a few other references to the fact that uh, that it's only been a, basically three weeks, and I thought surely it's been a few months. It feels yes. like it's changed season to... and everything. <laughs>
2: like it's yeah. better now.
0: Uh, yeah. So um, that that was well, that's a plot hole basically. Yeah. But you know, there's 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 no kind of getting around it. But then, in the between the third and the fourth series, there's another time jump of like a year,
3: mm-hmm.
0: so that kind of, kind of it all is all moved on from there. And unfortunately, by the third season, we've got rid of all the good female characters apart from uh, Dutch, That's Dutch, because another. I think Samantha Mathis's character is my other favourite character. She plays councilwoman. Justine Feraldo Oh who's yeah the, Oh she's like, good
2: She's a she, Yeah She's a Prickly I like her
0: <laughs> She's great She yeah. gets things done She does Yeah She's cool um, She's like the Not the mayor But the, uh, the You know the, the head of the Council on Staten Island Yeah I just gonna, We're going to be careful Not to sound like We're talking about What we do in the shadows here But um, <laughs> And she gets Kind of recruited By the mayor of New York to take over the fight against the Strigoi there. And um, and she's a really great character, I think. But again, she's kind of got rid of. Um, although I was pleased that in the fourth season, they introduce a new female character played by Rona Mitra, who is the lead in the one Underworld movie that doesn't have Kate Beckinsale in it. <laughs> Which I think I don't is... think
2: I've seen
0: any of them. <laughs> well, I've only seen the first one. I, th- I think she's the lead in Underworld: Rise of the Lycans. But anyway, she plays the character who's um, like uh, Fett's new girlfriend, stroke.
2: Um, mm. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, cohort. Um, and I was really pleased that they didn't just kill her off. I was kind of expecting it to happen at any point, um, but it, but it doesn't. And. Um, Just the last few episodes where all the different threads kind of come together Mm -hmm. are very exciting. And you get um, Eichhorst, the villain played by Richard Salmon, who I think is just a wonderful, hateful villain. (laughs) He's he's exactly what you want from a villain, which is very entertaining to watch. But you also hate him. Mm -hmm. I mean, he repeatedly abuses Dutch in different ways throughout the series. And I really like the fact that they kind of, seeded in that she keeps getting her own back in little ways Mm. like there's one bit where she chops his hand off yeah you know it's like incrementally she gets revenge but um ultimately she's not the person who who brings him down that's the um and i didn't know whether to be disappointed by that or not i wanted to see more of Dutch's vengeance but on the other hand Satrakian as the character who's been in conflict with this guy for like 70 years.
2: Yeah, he, he needs to finish um, it doesn't he?
0: And I have to say that the scene where Satrakian um, defeats uh, Eichhorst by allowing Eichhorst to feed on him when he's just next to a load of warframe.
3: Oh yeah!
0: I just I, I think that's my favourite scene in the series I just kept rewinding that and watching it again because... <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, it's that, that wonderful speech that um, uh, that David Bradley really drives home like rats you cannot vomit the blood thinner <laughs> he's got this lovely little delivery where he goes an anatomical curiosity no doubt but very significant too don't you think <laughs> it's that... like he's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just watched that over and over again. And that happens a few episodes before the end,
3: mm.
0: um, but for me, that was kind of the climax of the yeah. series because the kind of thread of it is really that that enmity between yeah. those two characters. And After that,
2: they're got... just kind of tidying up, aren't they? By so it so it can end nicely. Yeah. Was it what did you third... think of the ending?
0: Well, did, do you remember? Do you remember how you felt?
2: <laughs> Relieved, because then I could write about it and move on. To right. it, <laughs>
0: well, that's an honest answer. Yeah,
2: they said, "Great, are we done? Right, go, mm. <laughs> Yeah,
0: and we should say that the last couple of seasons are a few episodes shorter. Yeah, than the earlier ones which which may have been part of the plan. I
2: enjoyed um the change in the title sequence. Was it in the third season where it goes like a comic book? That happens, but it's only for one episode. For or one? At least yeah. that's the way
0: it appears on the Disney Plus ones. Maybe they've. Maybe it's I
2: just felt like one. you
0: know I thought, um, I thought that episode was running short. They needed like a minute of <laughs> extra a minute and time, and, a half. <laughs> and it's like, can somebody do us some cheap animation? Yeah. It can anyone draw? Can anyone in here yeah.
2: draw?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and they just used it the once, and, and yeah. So Maybe I noted that, that down
2: up. somewhere, but it didn't make the cut.
0: <laughs> right. Um, But, yeah, it it does come to a broadly satisfying ending, I think. Although, um, I remember... I think I'm slightly disappointed because uh, they end it by basically nuking the master, don't they? And they trick him into um, staying in this place where they've, they've got the nuke. But he he doesn't know that it's happening. There isn't a moment where he turns and sees the bomb about to go off and goes, and you want him to know that he's been defeated. Mm. But instead he's just kind of blissfully thinking he's won. uh, When the bomb goes off and the bomb is activated by Zach, um, who there's a really nice kind of, um, uh, back and forth across the last season, where you're not sure if Zack is um, going um, is, to is completely enthralled to the master, mm. or if he's going to go back to the human side, and they they keep that kind of uncertainty going really well, I think. But then in the last episode, I'm not entirely sure that it, um, they adequately set up that zach's real loyalties are to the human race because ultimately it's zach and his betrayal of the master which causes yeah. the master to be defeated and that and that kind of made me go eh. but um on the other hand you know um, you get to have a dutch and um Fett living happily ever after I know and that was sweet <laughs> yeah um, yeah and uh it's been weird watching the whole series from from the vantage point of the pandemic as well mm. because obviously it's, it is essentially about to fire a viral outbreak there's lots of familiar um
4: well, imagery and ideas stuff. in it
0: yeah the yeah. whole sequence in the first episode where mm. there's that coroner who's who kind of finds the worms in the bodies and then he tries oh, not they, to get them on himself and he's and trying to get his into cup. his
2: hand yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great scene. That's a really um, good scene. Yeah, and obviously he comes back a few episodes later, having turned into a strigati, which is really good as well. Um, oh,
2: we're well, speaking of worms. Um, oh yeah, that you do. Yes, uh, we do. The strain and Del Toro and the channel exec Landgraf, they got uh, their wrists more than slapped because the um, the billboard posters. To advertise the strain oh was, yeah. was the eye being pulled down with a worm coming out of it yeah and uh people went nuts and they were like you cannot have that poster it's like it's disgusting my children are seeing it on the way to school and they're crying and um, right. like all loads and loads of tweets to del toro and to fx and to the strain all saying you know things like you're trying to make me crash and die that's disgusting <laughs> take it down so they, they got proper bollocks um but uh del toro and john langrath both responded by going yeah well <laughs> you know all publicity is good publicity i think we scared some people but never mind and they took some of them down but they didn't take all of them down so they did mm-hmm. get in a bit of trouble for the poster And uh, it's a uh, just um have a bit in a, a le- lecture i'd show the students the poster and say that like, you know what what do you think and it's always half and half like some of them just go well, it's fine. Or the rest go. Ah, oh, no, it's hurt. I take it down. <laughs> I don't <worry> look <laughs> at it because it because it's you know it's it's just a close up on the eye. And the poster that they changed it to was um, like a side on view of a more sort of detailed version of one of the vampires with with the stinger coming out of the mouth. Oh yeah, yeah. and then the stinger makes up the S of the strain. And mm. it was like that's just as monstrous, but I, I think it was um, it was the worm. In the eyeball mm. was a bit too much for people's uh, morning commute. <laughs> so it's, got, it's too close to, to real it.
0: life, as well, isn't it? Yeah. I think you, it, the the, the strigoi is basically a big monster, but <laughs> yeah. you know we, we can all have eye infections. Yeah, um, I all think all that poster really effective. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think it's a great poster, and it's I lovely. think that for a piece of horror imagery, you should be reaching for something which makes people uncomfortable. Mm. Um, but it's also kind of weirdly beautiful, and um, mm. that's what that is. <laughs> so, but I can understand why there were complaints as well. Yeah. Um, yeah um, what else is there to say that that, that I've not said or that you've not said? I mean, there's loads, obviously, yeah. but in terms of this episode, um,
2: it's a good t- it's a good combination of stuff. It's it's a so, it's a solid vampire drama, but it's also a solid procedural as well. Because so it, so yeah, it kind of yeah it hybridizes those two together, and I like how the science procedural elements sort of cut through the folklore stuff. So it's never too heavy on the oh we must do it like this in the light of the moon, and it's never too much of that. You get the really clinical procedural things, and um you know like when you've got um the the letters that appear on screen to tell you where you are at the establishing shots, and it'd be like yeah. Taxway, Taxiway Fox Trot. I've got one written here, and then Poland 1994, and they sort of slam up onto the screen like they're being typed, like what well, yeah, you'd yeah. get in a CSI or something like that. And I, I've I found the, the squishing of those two together mm. really nice, and I've got one written here in my notes. So at times it feels a bit like CSI Transylvania, but it's an important moment in the development of the TV vampire because. With moving, it moves away from the lovesick, troubled TV vampire that we had a bit of in Buffy, and then we certainly had in True Blood. No matter how monstrous they wanted those vampires to be, they were still all really beautiful. So it, yeah, you know, all, all you can do is stick fangs on them. Whereas you know, <laughs> in in The Strain, you know, like we said before, it's refreshing for a TV vampire to be this monstrous, and then to place it inside the framework of a procedural. And then have the folklore sort of supporting it all. I think it's just really, really well put together.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that is really nice. And, yeah, the fact that it has the feel of a thriller, like a real-world yeah. thing, because they they put so much effort into the biological warfare yeah. and the, the disease control side of things. But also you've got these flashbacks which kind of... Uh, kind of link in the folklore and mm. I, I love the background of the character who was the original host of the master yeah. and all that we're running out of time so i don't yeah. want. I, I don't have time <laughs> to go into that but i just want to say uh, my final thought for it is i think it's cool that there's such a strong hispanic element in yes. it because of del toro's involvement i mm. guess you know you've got um uh, you've got characters who speak spanish a lot in the series with subtitles yeah um, that, that's really cool and, and gives it a kind of modern, kind of down-to-earth mm. naturalism. Although it does make it weird when you have flashbacks, because no matter where the flashback is, whether it's 1944 Poland or whether it's the Roman Empire or whatever, <laughs> they're all speaking English, often with English accents. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly in like the, the Roman sequences, you know. Um mm. And and you just kind of have to accept that disconnect, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, but I do appreciate the fact that I mean the character played by Joaquin Cozio, who's the uh, the former Mexican wrestler guy, who is a film oh, star God, called I Angel. I that bit as well. <laughs> he he hardly ever speaks English yeah. at all. That's great. He's God. a fantastic character as well. So much so. of it I've
2: just forgotten. But yeah. Yeah. So well, yeah, if you if you like vampires, give it a look.
0: Yeah, and I would mm. say, uh, yeah, and if you, if you like kind of, um, uh, if you like The Walking Dead, mm. then I would recommend The Strain.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, if you like a compressed narrative that takes you to the edge of the end of the world rather than being kind of post-apocalyptic, then then it very effectively does that. So, Stella, yeah. I, I could go on about this for a long time, yeah. but we're running out of time. <laughs> so um, we're going to do two things before the end of the episode. We'll, you and I will be back in a few minutes To do our recommendations mm-hmm. But right now the listener gets to hear Howard and I talking about a movie From The Bag of Death hey. Because we haven't done this for a few weeks <laughs> So let's just go over to that And then we'll be back Hello Howard Hello Dan how are you I'm very well thank you Very very excited as I always am at this time How are you um,
1: I'm equally
0: excited. Excellent. Oh,
1: damn
0: it, time. <laughs> ah, bless you, sir. Well, I have the bag of death ready. I am rustling it now. We never know what will come out of this. It could be any English language horror film that you and I have both seen over the course of our random and intersecting lives. Let's see what this is. I have something. I am unfurling it. And it says the night caller
1: oh you mean yes ah yeah now i watched this recently so
0: well so did i actually i found it on an old vhs and i decided to have a look again so i'm glad that's come out so the night caller is a black and white um science fiction thriller sort of horror well i wouldn't say it's a horror movie really but it is a, a little bit horrific in places it was made in Britain in 1965, I think, directed by John Gilling, who um, went on to do a number of Hammer films. It's not a Hammer film. Um, it's produced, I think, by Mersham Park Productions, is it? Or um, Mert- but, 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 Merton. It
1: Park did all the kind of like those second features, all those um, Edgar Wallace films, you know, and, um, and Scotland Yard, and all those. That, I think they did all those kind of.
0: Did they do Invasion?
1: They might have done, yes. Invasion's a very similar kind of film to the right corner.
0: So yeah, so it it's a very a very low budget science fiction piece and it's very much in the mode and style of Hammer's Quatermass films. The plot essentially um, well I'll sum it up like this. There used to be uh, you, you remember Steve Pont and Hugh Dennis? Of course you do, then they've never gone away. Um that these days, presenters of Radio force comedy series The Now Show, if that's even still on, or am I terribly out of touch? I don't know. But anyway, in their 90s TV sketch comedy series, um, which I think was called The Imaginatively Titled Punt and Dennis Show, they had a character who was a displaced alien who would try and chat... Well, try and chat... He was a character who... Would try would try to chat women up in bars by claiming to be a displaced alien. Whether he was or not, I don't know. But his chat up line was essentially, "My planet is dying. Please come with me and accompany me back to my homeworld for interplanetary breeding purposes." Yes, and the that's essentially the plot of the Night Caller.
1: Uh, an alien comes to take women back to his home planet for to you know continue the species. So they must have. See, I've always wondered about that. You've got to have the same kind of um, anatomy, haven't you?
0: Well, it's all a little bit vague about exactly how. He... I mean, if you've got to breed that way. Yeah, well, he, he is a male and he's only collecting women. Yes. So, you know, I, I, oh dear. Um. I think before we get into that, let's let's sketch in the film a bit because I I think we can be fairly confident that many of our listeners won't have seen this movie and don't know about it. So it's a film of two halves, really. Definitely. The first half is set on a a British army base and basically a mysterious uh, artificial satellite has fallen to Earth and the army capture it and a scientific team which I think is composed of Morris Denham... Um, John Saxon and Patricia Haynes?
3: Patricia Haynes, yeah.
0: Yeah, the, they, they, they begin experimenting on this device, which is like a football-sized sphere, to see what it might be in it. And they gradually come to the conclusion, I think the army suspects that it's a new weapon that, that maybe has been launched by the Russians or something, but the scientists become convinced that it's actually of extraterrestrial origin, although they don't really tell their bosses this because they don't think they'd be believed um the kind of, the general in charge of the base is played by john saxon oh sorry no. john carson john really? saxon is
1: uh, one of my favorite actors john yeah
0: carson. He, it's it's he's really good and it's a wonderful role he's pla- he's basically playing the brigadier from doctor who in this movie slightly hapless but kind of likable military
1: officers who don't really know what's going on. They're, they're, they're trying to sort of maintain their equilibrium, but kind of like they don't, you know, they don't really understand what the, what's actually happening and stuff. But he, I mean, he's really good, yes. Yes, and
0: his sergeant is played by Jack Watson, who Another good actor. played similar roles in movies like The Wild Geese.
1: Yes, and uh, the, um, oh, the sea wolves and all that sort of. There's lots of really good actors in this film. Yeah. It's a local film. There's lots of really good actors. Oh, sorry, I should say, there's lots of really good actors... And Aubrey
0: Morris. <laughs> True, Aubrey Morris is in it, and it's not his finest hour. Although, I get the impression, Howard, you don't love Aubrey Morris, because we mentioned him on The Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. He's uh, not one of my... Fa- well, he's all right in things...
1: He just seems to be hamming it up all the time. The most I've seen him in, he's sort of... Just that strange voice that he does all of the time. Like in the, the Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, that sort of...
0: Yeah, I think if he's in the right kind of production, like when he's in The Wicker Man, and, you know, um, he's talking to Edward Woodward, and there's that piece of skin hanging on a tree, and Woodward says, what's that? And he goes, the poor wee lass is navel skin. Where else should it be but hanging on her own little tree? You know, playing that kind of character and saying those kind of lines, he's okay. Um,
1: Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's... um He's not one of my favourite. just because um, everybody else is kind of underplaying it and playing it for real, and if somebody, yeah, it's like he's hamming it up because he feels that's what you have to do in that sort of film.
0: Well, so let's uh, contextualise that and say that he's in the second half of the film, which is very different. So, basically, the um, after without kind of giving away what happens because it's quite a short film actually as well, and it's 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 in a way it's quite discreet. In, in, in its composition i think it was based on a novel but it must not have been a very long novel um so this thing that's fallen from space does in fact contain an alien and following the first half of the film the alien um assumes human form and goes into london and and you then the the film kind of flashes forward a few weeks and you don't see it but apparently there have been a number of women going missing so there's a criminal investigation going on and the character played by john saxon is now advising this investigation and he thinks that this alien character may be involved and he's trying to get the the police to believe him and a word for john saxon i suppose this the fact that he's in it puts it in with those kind of British horror movies of the 50s and 60s that had to have an American lead or felt that... But he's very good and and I don't think it really trades off the fact that he's American. I think he he kind of is so subtle in it. I wonder if he's sort of trying to do an English accent. He sounds like... Trying to do an English accent and it does sound like... See, I kind of think John Saxon,
1: unlike some of the other people, actors in those science fiction films, I think John Saxon really gets it. He kind of understands what this film is. Uh, and he's kind of playing it for real. And he's really... I mean, he, he died last year, did you know?
0: No, What's I saying? didn't know. Oh, what a shame. You yeah, know, um... Because, of yeah. course, he he went on to play um, Nancy's father in Nightmare on Elm Street, and, and, you know, he's also in Black Christmas, isn't he? He's in a few significant later horror uh, genre so I, films.
1: I think he gets a genre. I think he kind of understands what he's talking about. You get the feeling sometimes Brian Dunne—he doesn't really know actually what he's saying, or doesn't really quite know... Feel very comfortable in, in that kind of film. I think John Saxon really does. He's really into it. And uh, but so, you say, know, First of all, like, I I do like this film partly because there's a wonderful jazz
0: theme music at the beginning. <laughs> there is, yes. Johnny Dankworth. Is it by or like Johnny Dankworth? It's not Johnny Dankworth. I can't remember the name of the composer. But it, and it's like it doesn't
1: sound like a kind of sci-fi movie. It sounds like some film about social realism film about people living in Bayswater or something in the 60s it's kind of very jazzy and it's great then and also I have to say that this, the version I saw on Talking Pictures was in colour it had been colourised oh
0: right okay so
1: black and white which does kind of change the, the mood of it so you, then you've got that kind of very quaker massy first half of the film where they, there's this alien object this sphere and they're trying to understand it and um, uh, some kind of and Patricia Haynes is in the room uh and suddenly there's these strange noises and an alien hand comes around the door and all this sort of thing all, all very quite massive, and all very kind of like scary mm. uh and then the, the creature kind of comes to life and escapes from this um laboratory or whatever they are uh and then suddenly there's this complete volte-face, this, this complete change and then the next thing you're in london weeks later where women are being uh, uh, you know disappearing and it's like, kind of, you watch it for the first time, you think, well, what, what's happened? Where, where are we? Why kind of, there's been sort of like nothing in between. Um, <clears throat> and then it turns out, and doesn't the alien kind of um, present himself as a, news- uh, a magazine editor or something?
0: He, Does he puts he adverts, to- he, he somehow arranges for adverts to be placed in fashion magazines and he wants models. And then he sets up interviews with the applicants and, and when they come to see him, Uh, that's when they are abducted, and I think he does this from, like, various offices that he hires for the purpose. How he's been able to do this, quite, is is not really explained. I I think that's
1: what I like about it. It's so kind of... Um, what's it? Kind of quaint, or what? Instead of just kidnapping these women, grabbing them, and take them off to a spaceship, he's actually sort of like putting adverts in magazines and setting up interviews, and they go and kinda of like what a, it's you know we think an alien from another planet is 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 doing all this, kind of like. Um, but no, I it's it's I think it's really, I think it's really imaginative. I think it's really ingenious. I think it's really well made really well directed. It's got people like Warren Mitchell and Alfred Burke and all these kind of actors in it. Marion Stone who was in loads and loads of films. Um, I think um, Morris Denham is always great and Patricia Haynes is really good and John Saxon like I say is terrific. The acting is really good. Um, It's it's a really kind of like of all those sci-fi films that came out in the 60s in Britain things like Unearthly Stranger and Invasion and one or two others I think it's one of my favourites just because I think it's it's really well done, and but at the same time, it's quite quite wacky. It, it
0: is really well done. It's really well acted. Um, I want to note that it's beautifully photographed by Stephen Dade, who one year earlier than this had shot Zulu, which I recently rewatched, and I think is possibly the most beautifully photographed film ever made. Um, it's but it, 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 that was right at the end of his career. He was a really distinguished kind of low-budget... Well, I say distinguished. He was not really known. He's one of those people who'd made kind of hundreds of low-budget British quickies. Um, and and then he, he'd kind of got Zulu. So that was quite prestigious. But And then after that, he only did a couple more films. And then he retired. His last film was, was a Hammer film called The Viking Queen, which was in... 1967 which I also watched recently and which is fun nonsense um it's not very good in any sense but um I enjoyed it and um I mean it's it's a hammer attempt at a historical epic it's not a horror film um and it's got some great actors in it but it's generally it's well it's the kind of movie that basically tries to convince you that uh Boudicca was an Italian model so it's um it, <laughs> it, it's well maybe it's it's a side to history that we've we've we, we've not quite seen before but um but no he so he he had great mastery of the camera and you know the the night color looks very slick this when it does when the action shifts to London there's some really nice kind of reportage style photography of just people in, in the streets of London at night which looks like they've just gone out. Into the streets and filmed real people and real locations, and and um, it's it's got a real kind of swinging London vibe to it. Very kind of
1: jazzy, kind of cool, kind of laid back feeling to it. Yeah, it's sophisticated in a way. I just kind of think this is you know this is a really clever film and it's really kind of stylish and um, and the ending I think is really interesting as well.
0: Well, the ending is one. It, is basically where my problems with it start. Um, uh, go on, though. You, why do you think it's interesting without spoiling it for people? Well, without spoiling it, it's, uh, well, I, I just I, think it's quite, a, it's quite a, an ambivalent ending. Well, I, I would just, I'll try and also avoid spoiling it, but I will just say uh, when it comes to the ending, I, I felt like it, it kind of acts like... Maybe the alien isn't supposed to be as evil as we thought. However, he has abducted loads of innocent women, and the film gives us absolutely no indication that they're going to come back. And the film kind of acts like that's okay, maybe. And I think that. I I mean, it's just kind of it's,
1: uh, it's. It's ambivalent. It doesn't make a kind of judgment either way. It's like well, are these, are these women going to come back? Is he going to come back? Or what's, what's going to happen? it's kind of like, I suppose some people would find that unsatisfactory, that nothing's really resolved. And he just, whatever, gets away. But uh, I kind of think, well, in most sci-fi films, the, the alien is destroyed and everything. And it's all back to normal. And, and in this one, no, there's something, he's, he has kidnapped these women. And it's, uh, and he's kind of got, got away with it, kind of, you know, they are on another planet. And, and,
0: yeah, I like that ambiguity. Um, I just think it's... I, I suppose because the way that the story is structured, we don't see most of the women who are abducted. I think we we see two possible abductions, one of which succeeds and one woman who gets away. Um, so therefore, we don't feel a huge sense of loss at all these women who've um who've been taken away and therefore maybe um the film feels that it's able to play that down but i'm not sure you can really say that all these but i mean it's not like they've been killed but it does strongly suggest they're probably never coming back and we don't really know what's happened to them and I don't it's not that you can't have an ambiguous ending about that kind of thing but I think that maybe just because it's a low budget film and they didn't have a great uh, amount of running time to play with I feel like we should be given a little this, the, the characters in the movie should have a little longer to process what happened and think about that kind of thing
1: perhaps yeah but I mean when it, when it ended I did kind of think well what about those poor girls I did kind of think well that's you know, and that's what I mean, it was kind of like, it's. it wasn't, there was something a little bit disquieting about it, it wasn't all resolved, and it wasn't all comfortable, and yeah, like in a lot of sci-fi films of that time, we're now so used to the downbeat ending, every, every horror film now has a downbeat ending, every film has a twist, you know, the baddies always get away with it, so, but back then, perhaps, it, it was more unusual to sort of, kind of, and, you know, some people would argue, I mean, that's kind of, in a way, right part of the film's sophistication in a way, that it, it's it's not having that traditional ending that is being quite sort of ambiguous and, and, and ambivalent on what's going to happen, and John Saxon's just kind of standing there at the end talking, and, it, and well, well, you know, perhaps it's, it's, it's challenging the audience perhaps a bit to sort of, and here's an alien who's kind of, his race is dying, so does he think he has to do this? Yeah. In order to, you know, if, would we do the same thing if we were dying and were able to kidnap women from another planet? I mean, kind of...
0: I mean, maybe the film is um, bettered or improved by the fact that it doesn't hammer these things down your throat, these kind of moral issues. It just kind of shows what's happening and then leaves you to think about it as the audience. Maybe that's to its strength. Um,
1: Yes. The first time I saw the film, I thought the ending was uh, problematic or unsatisfying. But when I watched it again, I thought, no, that's, that's, that's deliberate. They've... They want you to feel slightly unsettled by it, and, and what's happened, and, and I just I think it's all kind of part of what the film is. It is kind of like a cool film.
0: Yeah, it is. Well, without spoiling who this happens to, you know, there are a couple of deaths in the movie where a you're not really expecting it, and secondly, the movie, as uh, I just said, a and secondly, a you're not really expecting it, and b the movie is quite matter-of-fact about the fact that this person is now dead and the, the story just moves on.
3: Yes, yeah.
0: Um, and I, seeing as we did bring him up, we should mention that Aubrey Morris is in the second half of the story and he plays, doesn't he, play like a sleazy, slightly sleazy um, <laughs> library owner who, who, who may be a link to the alien. And uh, yeah, and and therefore the the police go and talk to him and he's a little bit, he's kind of known to the police and he's a little bit of a maybe uh, sort of furtive gay stereotype kind of character that the police don't like. And um, I can't remember if he has any direct connection to the action, but he's kind of a link um, and he's a bit shifty. And, yeah, there's just a couple of scenes with, with Aubrey Morris kind of being interrogated and being not very helpful, really, but also being I spineless. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah it, it's, I just find it a fascinating film for all sorts of reasons. It's fascinating that you've got these two halves which seem quite different. It's like two different, in a way, two different stories or whatever. And you've got this really good cast. And, and uh, I just find it kind of like it's a it's much, I don't know what the word, kind of like a just a bit more sophisticated than the normal, a bit kind of, uh, I don't know, a bit more laid-back and a bit more kind of uh, interesting and a bit more kind
0: of... uh, No, it does do its own thing. It's not very formulaic. Um, And it's got a sense of its own style as well. So, you know, that that definitely is to its credit. A bit more Uh,
1: subtle, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say, kind of than the usual thing
0: and feels kind of very much um like it could almost happen in the real world like there's a scene where um a couple are interviewed who were witness i think their daughter was one of the women who's gone missing yeah. um and the way that that scene goes, and they're just trying to remember where they were, and the wife goes, and says, "Oh, it was a Thursday because you're you're always home on Thursday. It's your um, snooker night on on Wednesday, but it was you were definitely home or something like that, you know." And they're kind of having little bickering about who remembers which details, and it just feels really natural, but it also feels kind of kind of very Coronation Street, kind of nineteen sixties social realism kind of drama.
1: Yeah, well, isn't Uh, that Warren Mitchell who plays that part?
0: Warren Mitchell is is the man, yeah. I can't remember the actress who's the wife.
1: Stone is the actress. Who is it, sorry? Marion Stone. Oh,
0: that's Marion Stone, okay. That's
1: it. And again, they're they're kind of people not really, although Warren Mitchell was in a few horror films, he's not really associated with the genre. He's half garnet and stuff, so he kind of, it feels more real because they're not, you know, he's he's associated with a more, you know, everyday kind of Yeah, yeah so, so yeah, all in all I think it's definitely worth watching I really like that, I watched it again recently because uh, it's on Talking Pictures and um, I think this is really good this is, this is really clever, it's smart
0: Right Yeah Oh well, if it's on Talking Pictures, that's good I, I dug out my VHS which was recorded off a late night ITV transmission about the year 2000 so um, I'm glad to know it's still knocking around. I've actually no idea if it's on DVD or anything like that. Um, but I think uh, the listeners should keep an eye on the talking picture schedules because it will probably come around again. Yeah,
1: it's good. It's worth, definitely worth watching. It's yeah. definitely worth
0: watching. It's a good one. Nice one. Thank you, Howard. That's been another bag of death.
1: It has. How marvellous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See you soon. See you. Bye-bye. So, that was me and Howard talking about another movie from The Bag of Death. Um, And welcome back, Howard. We're going to try and keep that up every week from now on, uh, if we can. Um, So, we've just got a couple of minutes left, Stella, so it's recommendations. Um, Do you want to go
2: first? Yeah, it's not necessarily a recommendation. It's more of a notification. (laughs) Okay, is this Um,
0: another thing you haven't actually seen?
2: I've seen an episode and a half. Right. It's um, the serialised I Know What You Did Last Summer.
0: I knew you were going to say that. I, I, I didn't even know about it until no, it, the, the advert came up on and my Amazon like, oh. feed the other day.
2: Yeah, so, so I've watched. There's about 10 minutes left of the second episode, so I'm pointing over there because the, my television's over there. Um, right. I was watching before before we did this. And uh, it's, I don't but all I can say at this stage is I'm going to carry on watching it. <laughs> like I've not watched the right. first one and gone no so yeah i'm going to carry on watching it so not necessarily a recommendation at this stage more of a notification and i okay. might turn it into a recommendation when I watch i'd i like tomorrow.
0: to i'd like <laughs> to hear from you what you think mm. because um I, I i've yet to be really convinced by the idea of long-form slash shows, with mm. the exception of scream queens but yeah, it was yeah. kind of more of comedy um but, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm slightly intrigued. I was also slightly intrigued by the weird poster, which is all the, the characters looking pretty like they, they're meant to do. Yeah. But with, with what looks like spaghetti bolognese on their faces. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be blood. But, you know, they're all kind of flecked with matter. Maybe they were t- all f-
2: trying to feed a toddler. <laughs> yes! To, to it's got picture. that kind of
0: uh, hint to it. Um, and my recommendation is on friday nights on talking pictures tv which is on freeview in the uk they've got a thing now called Cello club and Stella, you should you should point your students towards this if you you didn't know about it so it's basically um every week i think they have at least a double bill sometimes a triple bill of kind of 50s or 60s b-movies or film noir oh. so there's there's normal there's often a hammer film in there there's sometimes a roger corman movie uh there's sometimes like a more obscure kind of film noir like there's one with mickey rooney in the other week so not any of the kind of big classic film noirs that you that that we'll have heard of yeah. but kind of cool
2: little
0: Those are the good ones, uh, culty materials. And they're all introduced by Caroline Monroe, who was the star of Hammer films like Dracula, AD 72. Um, she's, she's sitting there in this cool little kind of gothic, um, cosy environment with a in a comfy chair and she says welcome to cello club and and she tells you a bit about the film that's coming up whether she was involved in it herself or not and it's just really nice every now and then she has a like a short interview with someone like a scholar yeah. or someone who knows about the movie as well and, um well they've but not given me
2: a ring yet i don't know what's going on there. well you never know <laughs>
0: it could be about to happen so um
2: oh that sounds great
0: yeah, I, I'm taping all of them because most of the films, or quite a lot of the films concerned, I've actually seen the film, but I just tape the bits with Caroline yeah. Monroe and just just sit down and watch. They're just yeah, just five minute little bursts, but it does ensure that there's interesting kind of horror type movies on every Friday on. Yeah, Talkie, and that's worth starting. Knowing. Starting at nine p.m. So, cool. Uh, yeah, Thanks, Dana.
2: I'll well, tell well. them about that. Yeah, and the Horror Channel Halloween weekend. I'll tell them about that as well
0: yeah brilliant there we go good opportunities for your students yes well then listener that's uh us for this week thank you so much for joining us again and hearing us natter on about the strain um next weekend it will be halloween weekend so um we, we should release something fun i i'm not quite sure exactly what yet but um you know we'll be back anyway um I can't believe it's Halloween weekend again, it seems like. <sighs> it's, the,
2: it's
0: the second Halloween weekend since
2: lockdown. It's
0: because we're it's, getting old. Yeah, <laughs> comes around quick these days. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> well then, Stella, All thank right. you so much for your company.
2: Thanks for having me, Dan.
0: You're right, and um, we shall do this again soon. All right. All right, brilliant. Bye. Bye-bye, listeners.
2: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
4: <laughs> you have been listening to... And now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Stella Gaynor, Howard Whittaker, and T.D. Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages, at andnowpod, or... At Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter. At And Now Podcast. Or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us. Please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops.